Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Today, we have a very special bonus edition of the CMO Podcast. This show was recorded live at the Next Gen CMO Academy, a three-day gathering of 52 CMOs and rising CMOs at the Leadership Center at Deloitte University in Westlake, Texas. In this episode, we recorded the kickoff plenary session for the Next Gen CMO Academy. On stage, I interviewed a former guest on the CMO podcast, Catherine Reeves, the EVP and Chief Marketing Officer for Illumina, the high-growth San Diego-based life sciences company that is a global leader in genomics. In this interview, I explore new territory with Catherine, including her three bedrock leadership principles. We also had a lot of fun going out to the CMO audience for their questions and comments. This is my conversation with Catherine Reeves. Catherine, thank you for being here. Now, I know Catherine, and we're going to get into how we met in a few moments, but I know her better than most of you in the room. She's been a guest on the podcast, uh, but Catherine was an incredible guest on the podcast back in April. Thank you. So I want to do a lightning round with her to get us started so you get to know her as, about as well as I do. And the first question in the lightning round, Catherine, is you went to Stanford and Harvard. Are you more Stanford or, or more Harvard? Hmm. Those are really, that's a good question because they're very different. Um, Stanford, I think, excels at innovation and expanding the pie. Harvard is um, really all about, you know, grow a pair, be tough. Um, don't let competition or the fierceness of your competition throw you off your game. Um, and I got a little bit of both, you know, a little bit of both in me. And I appreciate both, but probably in my core, I'm still more of a Stanford person. In about two or three sentences, tell us what is so special about Illumina. Hmm. By the way, I don't give her any prep for these interviews, so this is all cold. End of the day, uh, serving um, our customers is a privilege. Our products will profoundly impact human life, uh, the life of this planet, the life of uh, the animals on this planet, the oceans, the environment, um, and that's a sacred duty. So while I feel that our, you know, it's not summer camp, it's not a .org, we're for sure .com, having that mission at our core um, is what makes Illumina very special. We also have the huge benefit of serving um, the largest percentage of the market of any other market participant in our industry. So we are thought of as the leader. And because you're the leader, there's such a high set of expectations in terms of not only our performance, but how we conduct ourselves. So it is both a culture of intensity, but also humility. Tell us why you joined about two years ago. Maybe the same answer. 
It is. Um, and I would say the other real contributing factor was the CEO, Francis D'Souza, who um, personifies both that intensity and humility and maybe also the confidence of the company. He really made a personal pitch to me that Illumina needed uh, to upgrade its marketing and he thought I could do it. Catherine is the first CMO at Illumina. So that's, that's always a challenge, an opportunity and a challenge. You've recently moved from, your, from Columbus, Ohio, where yes. you've spent about 16 years. Yeah, 20. 20 years, okay. And you've just moved to San Diego, which is the headquarters of Illumina. 20 years in Columbus, just on the ground in San Diego. What's the biggest adjustment? I underestimated how, um, like, I think it's hilarious. Executives are constantly running around talking about how they embrace change, they love change, they live change. <laughs> and then, like, in my own life, I was like, oh, my God, change. <laughs> <laughs> so just, it, it's a lot. It's a lot to unravel relationships of 20 years um, and start anew. But it's um, also an important uh, transition for my husband and I. I mean, we're empty nesters. We're excited about the challenge. And we felt like we had kind of another big transition in us. And if we stayed put, um, we would settle into like the comfort zone. And we just didn't want to do that in our, our mid-50s. So it is a lot of change on every dimension, large and small, um, but also that feels good. It's like a good workout. The housing market is in the news a lot. You bought a house in La Jolla sight unseen. Is that correct? That is correct. It's pretty risky. No, it is. I um, think that every single industry has been affected by clearly digitalization. I did not expect myself to be an active participant in a very competitive real estate market and buy a place in an extremely, um, like I'm a kid who grew up without a lot of money. So, you know, I have, you know, saved nickels and dimes in order to, you know, ha have this position. So buying a place sight unseen in La Jolla felt kind of like, super high-class problem, but terrifying. Uh, FaceTime, literally did a FaceTime tour of the place before placing a firm offer to purchase. Absolutely bananas. It's worked out. Obviously. <laughs> We're going to have dinner in October or, yes, as couples. I hope right? so. so yeah, we're getting a yes. date. Now, your parents both work in the airline industry, and your mother worked for many years. Still does. At Delta. <laughs> and we have Delta in the room. Is that correct? We have Delta. Excellent. Great. Excellent. I'm a big Delta fan. I'm very public about that. I want you to talk about, from your father and mother, both in the airline industry, what's the biggest leadership lesson you took away from them and their careers? You know, that is a excellent question. Because when you grow up with two working parents who work in an industry that's 24-7, 365, your parents don't always have Christmas on Christmas Day. Hmm. They have to work the shift. And uh, my parents both sacrificed to send my brother and I to private school. So they looked for holiday pay, weekend pay, so that they could have the extra dough to send us to you know, good schools. So I learned work ethic. So part of one of the most important lessons is showing up, being on time and being prepared. And in industries that are operations driven, that's the difference between profitability and not. And then I think the second lesson that um, my parents taught me is that none of this works without the customer. My mother's a flight attendant, hardest working person on the airplane. 
and you know, there's so much made of difficult passengers, but she always looks at me and when we talk about it, like, was there really someone who brought a Shetland pony on the plane as a support animal? She's like, yes, darling, they did. <laughs> um, but the end of the day, she's like, none of this happens without the customer. The customer is the key to this airline's success. I am a frontline employee. My job is to find a way to support that customer and get them from point A to point B, no matter how difficult it is. We can't think for a second that any of the goodness comes from our businesses and brands without the customer. So both my parents really instilled that in me. I'd like you to describe how we met <laughs> and the lesson in that for everyone in this room who, who are about to begin three days of networking oh, and learning. Gosh. So, um, I have many mentors in my life. Uh, one mentor uh, happened to be a chief marketing officer at Nationwide, and we have a person from Nationwide in the, in the audience. And I remember being nominated for a program like this and uh, saying to this person, you know, would you write a recommendation for me? In fact, I presented the recommendation I'd written for myself and said, would you <laughs> be willing to submit this recommendation on my behalf? And he's like, you are way too prepared. And uh, I said, I'm not sure it's something I want to do. It seems like a lot of time away from the office. And he looked at me and he said, one, they're lucky to get you. Two, you might meet one or two really amazing people at this program, and that's the attitude you should take. We'll be fine without you. And it was a little bit of a, you know, take me down a notch, right, in the nicest way. And it was the best advice he could have given me because that is what a great career is. It's a, the collection of awesome people that you create in your own little family. And Jim and I share one of these people. Uh, her name is Leonora Polanski. She worked closely with Jim at P&G and helped uh, really train and develop marketers throughout the company for many years, a thought partner and strategist. And she supported me at Cardinal Health and she supports me at Illumina. And she said, you've been asked to, to speak with Jim Stingle. I love Jim Stingle. I'm going to introduce you to Jim Stingle and Jim Stingle to you because you two are great. <laughs> and, um, and Leonora kind of brought us together. And uh, I, I had so much credibility. I think I was in awe of you. And she was like, oh, no, you'll love him. And, uh, but she was this great door opener, and she's been that in my life in many ways, and I hope the same for me to her. Uh, but that is the job of this time together, is to make those relationships happen. Yeah. Good lesson for the next three days for all of us. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. Catherine, could you stay on the career path point for a moment? You managed your career really 
on a geographical basis. Yes. So if you were to move forward, you had to flip companies. So could you talk a bit about, that's an unusual career principle. Most people in this room probably don't manage their careers that way. Could you talk a bit about the positives of that? Yeah. Well, it played out well, I think because um, at times it was completely humiliating to have to go into a company and learn a new industry <laughs> from top to bottom. Um, there is a great level of confidence that comes from growing up in a company top, you know, starting at the bottom and moving to the top. You know where all the bones are buried. You know the organization model. You know the norms. You know the players. If you're someone who comes in and you're hired for a specific skill, but it's outside of your industry, you have to develop a different toolkit for um, navigating and performing well. And I think what that did for me is it took the ego out of the equation. So I consider myself a high-performing person. I operate at a high caliber. But I think when you are super comfortable, you can become sort of arrogant and maybe a little egotistical. Well, put, your, you know, put that personality type into an industry where they have more to learn than they know. So that means you start listening, learning. You really develop your people and leadership skills, your communication skills, um, you understand your strengths, your weaknesses. You spend a lot of time trying to figure out what are, are the most important priorities to the people, my peers, my team. Like I actually really care about what motivates them and makes their lives tick because I know that if I can tap into that and help them achieve that, they can also or probably more willing to help me be successful as their leader. So yeah, Jim, maybe what was kind of a downside ended up becoming a superpower. You have a few leadership principles that I know you hold near and dear, and I want you to comment on a few of these. Okay. And the first one is exercise self-control, especially when you were starting something new. Thank you, Jim, for that one. Um, I think this is a biggie. And it's something that I have had the pleasure of sharing with um, folks who are more junior in their career, oftentimes when you get a big assignment or a big moment, when the spotlight is on you, you want to come in and show your stuff. And I would just urge you that like all of that energy, energizer bunny, ready to go, um, can really be a bad thing to put on full display immediately. The most important thing is to control your need to prove competence and be brilliant. It's actually really important to get perspective and a sense of the land, the lay of the land. What's really going on here? What is the challenge? What is the problem? Why is this organization in this place? Why does this problem exist? There's probably really good reasons for why the situation is what it is. And so by taking a step back, controlling your own need for kind of displaying your, you know, fabulosity, you know, tone it down, listen, learn, read. It's amazing what people put into email or a memo that people just don't read. Like, honestly, collect your facts and data. Keep yourself in check. Um, and uh, don't be immediately offended. Don't be too precious. You know, have a good thick skin and just you know, persistently get the facts before you form an opinion and you show your stuff. Second principle, nothing crushes ambition like low expectations. 
It's like one of those quotes that has to be on a poster. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think it's actually, um, it may have been Ronald Reagan who said that about racism. Uh, and he said that um, the left suffered from this um, lowered expectation that really would undermine the ambitions and upward mobility of minorities in America. And I take a lot of beef with Ronald Reagan, so not necessarily on my Mount Rushmore, but I do find that this concept of condescension and low expectation is soul crushing. And so I oftentimes will volunteer and raise my hand for the tough challenges. Um, and I don't necessarily complain about the complexity or difficulty uh, that is presented in a situation, because I think constraint is oftentimes the place where creativity arises uh, and where you learn the most about yourself. And I kind of crave it. And, and maybe my children will be in therapy because I had that philosophy also in mothering. Um, I really um, believe that sort of the standard in life is and should be, you know, the measure of who you are. It shouldn't be like some lowered um, sort of easy uh, positive experience where you get a pat on the head and a gold star. Um, I think we are at our best when we are, you know, most challenged. So, um, yeah, I believe in that one big time. Building an inclusive organizational culture is about combining psychological safety with really high challenges. Yeah. A little bit related to the last one, but could you speak a bit more about building a culture and this psychological safety and really high challenges? Yeah, I, what I found when I came into Illumina was probably high challenge, low support in the marketing organization, a lot of high wire acts with no, um, no cushion on the fall. So there are people just you know, not feeling like they had the resources or support to be successful. I also find, kind of related to the last question, um, not getting appropriate feedback. Oftentimes, women and minorities in particular don't get great feedback because people don't want to hurt their feelings. They don't want to end up in EEOC or blah, blah, blah. So they just keep all the feedback to themselves. Well, guess what? You can't prove unless you get the feedback. But it has to be delivered in a way that gives that person support and a chance to improve, like really open-minded, a chance to improve. And so what I did to my peers and my boss who had such high expectations of marketing is start to build what I call a scaffolding of support and a platform for how we would improve the marketing organization. So a reason to believe that this team could reach a higher level of performance. And once you credibly show that this team can reach a higher level of performance, the support starts to come in. So then the high challenge, low support starts to migrate to high challenge. You know, we really are trying to unlock the power of the genome. Biology is deeply, deeply challenging. So not going to, the challenge doesn't go away for Illumina. Um, but the support can make the difference between a toxic, self-defeating culture to one that is more open to higher performance. And I think that's where we are. It's building kind of that muscle towards high performance, but you have to build enough credibility for the support to come in. And so there's a person in the audience who was very instrumental in helping me do that, and her name is Rena Bradham. She was my chief of staff at the time I joined Illumina and now runs 
um, clinical segment marketing for Illuminas, helping out part-time and brand. But she, at the time, was my chief of staff and helped me build that platform for support that the whole organization got behind. Kathleen, I want, to, I want you to go back to when you joined Illumina. You've been there two years plus. Mm -hmm. And you went in, you came in from, as an outsider during COVID, you were based in Columbus, and you practiced your principle of coming in, listening, and learning. And you did that, but you sort of discussed, and you were coming in behind, not a CMO, but someone who led the function, who was very popular. Mm -hmm. And you were coming in to build on that person's momentum. But you came in and I think quickly learned that you had to act faster than maybe you were comfortable acting at the level of seniority you had in the company or the level of tenure you had. And you had to make some people changes quickly. And so put yourself, everyone, in that position. You're coming into a hot growth company from the outside. You come in with principles of listening, but somehow you were compelled to act and you moved on some people very quickly. So could you tell us about that situation, how you navigated that, and from what I understand, that appeared to be the right decision because organizational health measures kind of went, went up. up. So take us there, tell us that story, tell us what you learned from that, and was it uncomfortable acting that quickly? <laughs> yes. Um, you know, Jim, we've talked before, and the one thing we agreed on is that the people decisions are the hardest. Yeah. I mean, they're the hardest. Um, competitors are hard, market challenges are hard, recessions are hard, inflation is hard, but people, really, another level of hard. Um, and I didn't wanna make changes quickly. Um, but in our industry, um, our company as the leader and the leader for the last, you know, call it 20 years, it is the most fertile recruiting ground for the entire industry. So um, when I came in, I could, sense immediately that some folks were on the fence, probably shopping and not down for the transformation. And that to me was an important, important data point because if you're trying to shift organizational performance, halfway in won't do. Um, and then uh, there were some very popular, important leaders that also I needed to convince that absolutely this was the place to stay because I needed momentum and uh, support. So it was a really um, huge test of, you know, reading people, um, understanding the level of influence, how much support I really had from my peers and leadership, um, lots of sleepless nights. I mean, lots of sleepless nights. Um, and thankfully we're past that stage, but I don't wanna paint the picture of it being like this smooth uphill climb. I mean, I joined the company and our engagement like just hit the floor, um, you know? And so in that moment, what do you think? You think, oh my God, what have I done? And then, you know, you make some people moves and you're like, okay, it can get lower. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> And then you start to bring in the new team, the fresh legs, the smart thinkers. You start to realize the value proposition we have to offer is pretty exciting externally and internally. Um, you get smart people to join and they tell friends and then it gets to be the place you wanna be. 
you got a little mojo going, leadership is putting money behind you, you've got some of those entrenched people are coming off the fence, they're getting behind you. And so then you can kind of put together your little coalition and then you get some momentum. Um, and there is a beautiful chart that we shared at an all hands about Christmas of last year, which showed literally our engagement hit the floor and then just climb all the way up. And now, you know, very happy to see our engagement in line with uh, Illuminous norms, which is quite high versus our industry norms and also the total population of the sample for the uh, company we work with on engagement. And so ultimately, the team and the organization's performance is a referendum on my leadership. And I think a lot about that. The same way um, leaders look at their polls uh, in politics and they look, are we on the right track, wrong track? And I think you all know, when you look at your consumer data, do I love the products and would I be a repeat purchaser? Um, I think about that every day. And, you know, Francis, my CEO, asked me to take on communications. I've never led communications. I've had, you know, product communications or marketing communications responsibility. Never had communications responsibility. That is a 24-hour, 365 job if there ever was one. But in communications, the timeframes are so much shorter than in marketing. And I think that that experience of leading communications has helped me realize this concept that I'm talking about, which is every day is a referendum on my leadership. So every day that I show up, I get to decide what energy and sort of intent I bring to the day because my team is going to basically decide, are we on the right track or wrong track? based on what I bring to the room. So just thinking about that on that kind of daily cadence, I think is extremely important. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. What are you most proud of in these two years? Oh, gosh. Uh, back to the most hard thing, the people. Mm-hmm. Um, we most recently gathered together in San Diego, in our headquarters, and we actually had the room full of marketers. Um, it's a global team of about 500, but I'd say we had 200 people packed into a conference room and then had like a, like a really fun uh, social afterwards. And I could literally scan the room and see the faces of people that, you know, are so dedicated to the work that we do and are bringing their very best to Illumina every day who've quietly counseled me and helped me understand things, um, really helped me be successful as a leader. I've seen people in that room who kind of turned around on me, the 360 people. I had long-tenured Illumina people offering testimony um, in that meeting. And I, you know, also sadly have uh, recently seen a very long-standing trusted leader that I worked with over the last two years decide to move on. And so, 
it is the people. It's the ebb and flow of that community. It's that sense of accountability that I love about being a leader and, you know, how much I feel responsible for that group of people and just seeing them uh, gathered. It just was so uplifting. I mean, I literally love what I do. You just talked about this all hands or a lot of hands, 200 people there, <laughs> there at a conference room. What other rituals or practices or processes do you use, do you employ to keep close to your people, to keep them all aligned, to keep them all engaged on fulfilling your purpose? Yeah, so one of them, and it's funny, my new chief of staff, Effie, has been really on top of me. We've got to get back out on the road. It's time for us to travel and see our people where they are. And, you know, one of the practices that I um, have adopted is go to where people are. Um, When I was at Cardinal Health, um, one of my accountabilities was to a plant that was based in Juarez. Uh, Folks did not want to go to Juarez to see the plant because of their fear, right? And I I always thought that that was, it was really uninformed. We have a, a, you know, yeah, there's crime in Juarez, but there's crime in Dallas. There's crime in New York. So I would go to see our plant in Juarez and see our products being made literally every four to six months. And um, I think getting out and seeing people where they are and like seeing the work be done and not sitting on um, a Zoom screen um, and that safe distance is a very good ritual and practice that we've just got to get back into. I don't know if you guys have been reading about these uh, kind of new way of quitting that's gotten a lot of press recently in the New York Times and Wall Street mm-hmm. Journal. Sort of this, rather than showing up at work at kind of a 7 to 10, you show up at work at a 4 to 6, and you just sort of slowly fade away. I think that is so easy to do if you're distant. I, I don't have qualms with remote work or, you know, being in the office, not being in the office, but being together, I think, is a way of knowing, like, am, are people fully recruited? Are they really with us or are they fading away? So that's a ritual that Effie and I are committed to changing in 2023. I'm going to go back out to you for any questions about anything leadership related, anything Catherine has said. Again, say your name and where you work. It's just helpful for Catherine, I think, in answering the question. Hi, Mike Josloff. Uh, I'm from CBS. And something, thank you, first of all, for your candor and insights. Uh, one of the exchanges you had as you were beginning the discussion today was that you were the first CMO <laughs> for Illumina, which has both its, I think, Jim, you mentioned mm-hmm. it has both its challenges but also its opportunities. And I'm curious about how you helped educate your stakeholders both the CEO who recruited you very um, eagerly, but also the kind of key key peers and stakeholders that you had around what marketing could do for the business and bring value to the organization? It was such a great question. Um, I often joke that everyone in every company believes in their heart they're a great marketer and they want to do marketing. They don't want to fund it or support the function, but they want to do it. So, and I think there's a reason if you look at the average tenure of chief marketing officers, I think it's like at two years and declining or maybe even worse, because it is a function that sits interstitially among very powerful functions, typically in an organization. And 
Um, I will compliment you. CVS is a brilliantly marketed and run company. Um, congratulations to you. I think um, Illumina is a very high IQ organization. My CEO is double MIT, ran two companies, spun them off and sold them, worked for Bill Gates because one company was sold to Microsoft. Like really super bright guy. My peer, the guy who runs R&D, is a PhD MD from Stanford um, and a brilliant researcher uh, in addition to being a wonderful leader. The person who runs our commercial organization, sales organization, used to run the product organization. Uh, she's an engineer and um, is in the, you know, I think there is an academy, National Academy of Engineers, and she is a, a full member. So highly accomplished. So these aren't like dumb people, right? Um, they understand, I think, that marketing was needed. Um, and I think they f have extremely high expectations of what they want marketing to deliver. So again, that's really good for the ambition of marketing. And to your point, what could have been crippling, I saw as an advantage. If they have high expectations in marketing, then my job is to really create the equation that shows if you want that, then you must do Y. And the reason that I believe that is, you know, three or four good reasons to believe. And, you know, incredibly quantitative, rational, super smarty, smarty pants marketing team, we were able to work together and build those cases. I think finance is always a really tricky relationship between marketing and finance. So that's a relationship I would urge you to, to nurture in particular. So uh, back in the olden days, there was an organization called the Corporate Executive Board. I think it's now part of Gartner. Mm -hmm. And they study functions. And um, so there's a really brilliant chart that they produce, which was on one axis, cross-functional trust and then like the list of um, functions that are like high, low trust. And so the relationship that had the least amount of trust was marketing and finance. And I think it's because finance believes that marketing is a bottomless pit of um, essentially lighting dollars on fire. <laughs> I think that's what comes to mind when you know, CFOs think about marketing. And so um, thus, this whole move to data and quantitatively driven marketing um, so that you can make a quote-unquote ROI on the marketing investment. Of course, everyone knows that the big undermining issue of that is attribution. Who gets credit for that ROI? Can marketing claim full credit for every sale that walks in the door? Well, sales might have a thing or two, you know, two to say about that, as well as your product teams. So... You know, really, I have shied away from trying to be super precious and perfect around ROI and talk about and show consistent data on the team's performance as much as possible. And if you don't have complete data, show a representative sample of your data. And then, you know, also uh, build in opportunities for your finance partner to really sit around the table as the marketing team makes choices about how they spend so that you have an insider who sees your marketing team at work so that they can be a, essentially a beacon of credibility inside of the finance organization. So those are the kinds of uh, tactics I've used um, and how I think about some of those relationships. 
Um, I think also much has been written about the important relationship between uh, marketing and IT, given the rise of digitization and e-commerce and the need for you know, many data and analytics platforms and tools to enable marketing. And so, but it's the same, same kind of toolkit, bringing people into the discussion, helping them see how marketing um, is making decisions. Let them have the mic and lead meetings. So, you know, really they should feel like a fully fledged member of the marketing team. And then they can be your kind of um, coalition builder inside of their own functions. That was a great answer and a great question. One thing I'd add is go outside and ask your peers what success for them is in marketing. They'll, they'll love that you asked and you will get tremendous insights. It will open up new doors of discussion. That's maybe 10 or 12 meetings. Well, well worth your time. You had a question? My name is Joanna Beck and I work at Vanguard. Okay. Hmm. And I wanted to ask about what have you learned about yourself throughout the years and then how have you brought that authenticity to work? I feel like when we're younger, either we just don't know ourselves well enough or we're too worried about what others think. Um, but as we grow older and learn more, we can drop that and be more authentic. So I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Oh, geez. Um, a good question. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't think that self-awareness is 100% correlated with age. Uh, and that's because I know a lot of old, really out of touch people <laughs> um, who don't have a good sense of like what they project and who they are. So um, I, I think for me, the primary kind of moderation uh, is a good word for how maybe I've developed over the years. I came into working life with a massive chip on my shoulder. It was because I am black. I am not uh, from a wealthy family. Um, I managed to get into a highly competitive university and graduate with a degree in engineering. And I joined the workforce ready to prove some shit. Okay. <laughs> so I really was on full blast. And what you realize is that that is um, incredibly motivating and important because there's a ton of resistance um, against people like me, but it doesn't exactly allow you to form relationships and build um, the coalitions necessary to be successful in any endeavor. So I think as life happens, you have some successes, you have some setbacks, I have the capacity to moderate my intensity more at my own command as opposed to the reactions of others driving how and who I am. And I try really hard not to just project back the energy I'm given. Because most often, it is a combination of low expectations, you know, um, how did she really get this job? Or extremely intense how did she get this job, right, kind of thing. So if I let that be the energy of who I am in my day, um, I, wouldn't, I won't be uh, effective. I also started to imagine an identity for myself that was more expansive than my work success. Um, and I really thank my children and husband for that because um, they don't really care 
right? They don't care if mom has to be in front of, you know, a room of 100 people talking about marketing. What they really want is for you to be there and, you know, move them into college or whatever. Like, it really is all about them. And um, because I always had that pulling on me, I think it allowed me to let go of some of the incredible judgment and expectation I put on myself in terms of success. And I take the hits, you know, I take my failures, I take my lumps. I'm not as embarrassed by them because I now have the permission to see what human beings at the highest levels of corporations are really like. And they're quite human. So it has given me permission to myself to be okay with my strengths and weaknesses. Okay, we're one more. Hi, my name is Julia. I work at Oxy. It's an oil and gas company. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't traditionally do marketing. Uh, so my question for you is about that. Um, you talked a lot about the importance of the customer and the value of the brand. Uh, so as a company like mine is setting out to do more with the brand and more with marketing, would you seek to change that perceived definition of the brand or the definition of the customer or both? Oh, no, that is such a good question. And I love that. Um, I know Oxy. So we at Illumina serve really sophisticated, large researchers, research institutions, big translational medicine um, shops like an Anderson and community hospitals, hospital systems like HCA or Trinity. And so we have a huge diversity of customers and how they make purchase decisions. And we also know that that's not the same as Johnson & Johnson baby aspirin. So we're not going to be on TV with commercials, right? So our concept of brand and brand development is very different. So we really just break down who's making the decision to purchase our products and services. How do they think about us? You know, what, are, what is their sentiment and their willingness to repurchase and recommend? And then what are the most effective ways for us to um, be in that conversation? Um, so one of the big moves we've made is building community. In our industry, community is mostly owned by the big societies. So, you know, American Society of Clinical Oncologists, they have big conferences and gatherings and all kinds of organizing tools. And we go to those places where our customers are. And so that won't change. But we also serve, you know, the pediatric ICU. So when, you know, small babies are born and they don't thrive, oftentimes there's a genetic component. That group of uh, neonatologists is not going to the American Society of Clinical Oncologists uh, meeting. They're going to their own society. So either we, we were thinking, do we continue to do all of the societies all of the time at the highest level, or do we create our own community of really shared mindset customers who oftentimes may not interact with each other, but who have a really shared vision around driving genomics into the clinic? Um, and so we've decided to foster and create our own community and build our brand, our big brand play around that annual customer gathering. And we'll do that September 28th through October 3rd in San Diego in our home shop where we can show latest technology innovation. We can build that conversation where they can talk about 
how they've integrated their tools into their, our tools into their missions. It'll give us what we believe are preferred insights so that our value proposition continues to grow. So different brand play than maybe a traditional one, um, but one that has a lot of value. Seems Is that a fire alarm? I hope not. <laughs> no, no. Okay, good. Okay. Amber alert. Okay, Amber. Okay, got it. Okay, Catherine, one last piece of pithy advice to this group as they embark on three days of learning and networking and reflection about themselves, their purpose, their companies, their teams. Um, open up. Really open up. Take the time to share something that's going on um, with your career or your company that is not great, that you would like to hear someone else's point of view on. Chances are you are too close to that problem and hearing from another smart person about that problem might open up your own brain to some sort of solution. That won't happen if you hold it too close and, and wanna just project, I work for so-and-so, isn't that fabulous, I'm better than you. Right, So if that's the energy you bring to this gathering, you won't get the benefit. And then that person who gives you a little nugget or an insight or you like their take on your problem, take the time to get their contact information and stay in touch with them. The day will come where you'll be able to do that for that person in reverse. Uh, and that's actually called a relationship. That Catherine is with us for the rest of the day, tonight at the dinner, she's around, so you have a chance to network a bit with her and talk to her a bit more about everything we just talked about. And I have to recommend your podcast you did with me, because if you like what you heard today, we go deeper in a lot of this, and you get really get into Catherine's personality or approach to work and life, and it's hugely inspiring. So thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. That was my conversation in the plenary session with Catherine Reeves. One big takeaway from this great conversation, get your team right as quickly as you can when you're in a new role. Catherine listened, she learned, and she moved quickly to get her team right, and the engagement in the entire organization with the company's mission went up. Get your team right quickly. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.